Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. So brothers and sisters, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem uh, for our evening Bible study. Although, to be honest, we've got about 10 different nations that can't, can't get represented in our Bible study, so who knows where the evening begins and actually ends. Um, but it is a delight to have everybody here. It's a great family that, that gathers around Wednesdays. It, it really is. And for those that are listening, we appreciate you and we consider you part of our family as well. And we hope that you're blessed by our study as we continue to wrestle with the Word of God, applying it to our lives so that we can become better followers of Jesus the Messiah. All right. We acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is present. He's, he's present with me. He's present with you guys wherever you are. And uh, it's the same Spirit. So we are, we are, we are the same family. And um, our brother from Czech, the Czech Republic, Vitek, some people might not have recognized his voice. He, our brother, is going to pray us in. So, Vitek, would you uh, grace us with a prayer? Yes, my pleasure. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this time you have given us to open your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be connected as your body through the Zoom. And thank you for the scriptures you have given to us so that we can discover better who you are. Uh, help us not write on our own understanding and reveal yourself and your will to your sacred words. And please give uh, anoint Aaron the wisdom for today's teaching. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So our tradition is we read the, uh, the notes, from, uh, which is like a little summary from last week's discussion, which was um, quite lengthy. Uh, we, had a, we had a great discussion on Leviticus 16, which is a very important chapter. Uh, the notes should be online, and you can read them along as, uh, as we go. So Leviticus 16, 1 to 10. As Lord Rabbi Sachs writes, Judaism sets a high bar. The people of Israel are called to be holy, just as the Lord himself is holy. Now, Jesus reflects this theology in the new covenant when he commands us to be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Human frailty, such that it is, dictates that we will inevitably fail to reach such a high standard. So what then can be done? The Hebraic answer is atonement in an incredible act of selfless love. Leviticus 16 sets out the ceremonial instructions for the day of Yom Kippur without actually making a mention of the name Yom Kippur itself. The context of Leviticus 16 has been four chapters concerning distinguishing the clean from unclean, with the majority of commentators, ancient and modern, discussing the literal text in theological terms of sin, sickness, and fortune. Now, God also speaks to Moses on the occasion following the death of Nadav and Avihu, which are the sons of Aaron. Nadav and Avihu approached the Lord in a strange time and with an inappropriate offering. Thus, God now instructs Aaron when and how he may actually enter 
the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark was the Kippurah. It was here on the Kippurah that the Lord says he will appear in the cloud. Most translations render this word Kippurah as mercy seat, although some modern translations, such as the JPS, the CJP, and some newer NIVs use the term atonement cover. Kippurah is basically the golden cover over the Ark of the Covenant flanked with cherubim. It is a separate piece of the Ark and is described as such in the text, as the object rested on the Ark and God rested on it. The word describes a covering, just as in uh, Genesis 6.14, when Noah covered the Ark in pitch, the word there is kaparat, covering, he covered it in pitch. The Greek some, this is the same word, but with different vowels. We note that Noah didn't cover the ark in mercy. He covered it in pitch. The word mercy in Hebrew is rechamim, and it is not initially connected to kaporet at all. Plus also it's in plural. Mercy is always in plural. Interesting thought. The Greek Septuagint translated the word as Hilasterion. Hilasterion is used 27 times in 20 verses in the place of the word kaporet, so mainly in Exodus and Leviticus. And it always has the meaning of a covering object, call it a seat, if you will, as the place where the presence of God resides on Yom Kippur. Hilasterion does not mean mercy, but it means covering with the word in Hebrew being the root word of atonement. So how did the concept of mercy seat enter the vocabulary of the translators? Good question. The translation journey continues into the Latin Vulgate, in which St. Jerome in 386 AD used the word propitiatiorio, oh my word, You'll have to read that one to figure out what I just said. This added the meaning of appeasement to the original Hebrew and Greek. So the Latin word adds something which is not actually there in the Hebrew and Greek. Much later, much later, in 1523, took a long time before we got another translation of the Bible. In 1523, it was translated in Luther's Bible the word kaporet, okay, hilasterion, propita tutorio, was translated as uh, gnadenstuhl, which is seat of grace in German, which actually took it a little bit back from the concept of appeasement and a bit more closer to its original intent. Tyndale, in his English translation, in which he paid the ultimate price to publish, he's a hero, he introduced us to the phrase mercy seat as he was quite influenced by the, by the meaning of the Latin Vulgate. Thus, in translation history, we have moved from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to German to English. And at the end, the English no longer reflects the original, literal Hebrew meaning of the word covering. Paul the Apostle, in his epistle to the Romans, in chapter 3, verse 25, 
wrote that God has set the Messiah as a hilasterion. Okay, he's quoting in Greek. Now, this is rendered in English as propitiation, and the influence from the Latin is obvious. Modern scholarship, particularly those connected to the Jerusalem perspective, note that Paul, who knows Hebrew and Greek, and not the Latin Vulgate, because it's 300 years before he was born, actually probably here reflects that Jesus is our atoning covering, and then he also references Passover and not Yom Kippur when he writes in the same sentence, because of his divine forbearance, he passed over our former sins. While both Passover and Yom Kippur are indeed referenced, the tendency in New Testament is to elevate Messiah as the Passover sacrifice. Now, there are many sacrifices performed in the tabernacle for Yom Kippur, and atonement is being made continually and for multiple persons and things. Yet, the highlight and major difference in Yom Kippur is not the sacrifice that died immediately, but the one that took the sins of the Israelites out of the camp and away. John the Baptist makes the claim that when he sees Jesus, he declares him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, returning to the plain text of Leviticus 16, we noted that while much detail is given regarding sacrifices and their performance, no mention is made of the heart of the people. In fact, on a literal reading, the Israelites are not participants in any great detail at all during the ceremony. All work for atonement is done by the high priest, who largely remains completely unseen and hidden in his work within the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. Initially, Aaron, the high priest, takes two offerings for himself, a bull and a ram. And Jewish tradition says that these he must pay for from his own resources and not from the public coffers. He changes clothing, does simple humble garments, foregoing his famous breastplate, the urim and the thumim, and the headpiece with the name of the Lord in grey. The sacrifices are for the personal atonement of the high priest as well as his household. Household sin and the sins of legacy are not something we often think about. But prior to the presence of the Lord, they have to be dealt with through atonement. The Passover sacrifice was also a sacrifice for an entire household and not solely for individuals. This theology of household sin and atonement may explain some of the Pauline texts in which the faith of a spouse can cover an unbelieving family member. Two goats are presented from the Israelite community before the Lord and lots cast to choose which goat is for the Lord and which one is for Azazel. Azazel is another mysterious Hebrew word which precludes translations. Is Azazel the name of a person? Is it a place or a reference to the goat itself? Through the Jewish exegetical tradition, it has come to mean all three. Azazel stands in the same place in word order and structure as the Lord. Thus, initially, it appears to reference a person. 
one goat for the Lord and one goat for something called Azazel. Traditionally, he was a fallen angel, was defeated by Michael and imprisoned in the desert, thus bringing in the tradition of the desert as the abode of demons. Now, Jesus makes a reference that following an exorcism, the spirit wandered the dry places, that is the desert, and it returned with friends to repossess the man again. And following the baptism of the Lord, the spirit sends Jesus into the desert for his encounter with the accuser of man, Satan. The Rambam from the Middle Ages referred to Azazel as a place or another name for the wilderness. And many modern English translations have followed his lead. Thus, most of our English translations will actually say, take him to the wilderness, following Rambam. Now, using the Hebrew word play, Azazel can read as az, which is goat, zuz, to move. Thus, it is sometimes rendered as the scapegoat or the goat that moves. Well, which one is it? Well, it's probably all three. Welcome to Hebraic thought. The goats that are selected by Lot, as there is absolutely no actual physical difference between them. One is offered to the Lord as a sin offering. Now recall that sin offerings are for unintentional sins. The high priest then does a symbolic transfer of the sins of the Israelite community on the head of the live goat, the scapegoat, as it has come to be known. It is then removed from the presence of the community and given over to the desert, or to Azazel, either of which represents a source of evil. Which sins is the goat carrying? All of them, both unintentional and intentional. Now, the Hebrew text in verse 10 actually reads, the goat will atone for him. Well, who is the him? The only subjects in that sentence of the verse are either Azazel or the goat itself. Thus the question becomes, is the atonement for a fallen angel or for an animal? It is very unclear, and translators differ in their choice of how the translation should read. So what is going on here in this ceremony? Are we trying to appease a desert demon? Are we, talking, are we taking the annual sins of the nation and we are dumping them on a rebellious fallen angel? Or is the action of removing the sins of the people as far away as possible, never to return, the actual theological point that the Lord is making. The mystery of the Hebrew language requires us to continually ask, seek, and ultimately find those answers. All right. So that was a summary of our uh, wrestling of the text. Roughly the first uh, uh, 10 verse. So I'm going to continue to read from verse 11. We read it last uh, week, but for those that are joining on podcast, here we go again. So Leviticus 16, verse 11, and I'm reading from an ESV. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil 
and he'll put the incense of the uh, on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so he doesn't die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger and on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and shall bring his blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and he shall make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, and he'll put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it from his fingers seven times, and he cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end, of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put on them, shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off his linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put it on his garments and come out and offer the burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and all the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he can come inside the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for a holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his water, body in water, and afterwards he come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. And you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. and You shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place, shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel 
once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Oof. All right. There you go. There's a lot there. Now, again, I know we've wrestled with this before, but here we go. Um, based on a literal reading, after having another week's look at it, what is it there that jumps out, uh, that uh, grabs your attention, perhaps something that's missing? And then we will uh, have a bit of a look at the text. Okay, Sharon, you got a hand raise? I just as you read that, Aaron, I was impressed when I read uh, verse 15, then he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering and, you know, trying to dig deeper into what the sin offering means, like verse 16, in my version says, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, would, which would make it like an intentional sin, right? Yeah. Rebellion being like, mm-hmm. they must be rebellious against God. And that's what there was. That's what the, the, the atonement's for, maybe. It's a, yeah. So what I find, what I personally find interesting is this constant uh, reference to we have to make the Holy of Holies, but to atone for the Holy of Holies. You're like, oh, my gosh, what happened to the Holy of Holies? I mean, who goes into it to messy it up, right? The high priest, only, only one guy can go in and only once a year, and only after he's done a whole bunch of things to make him clean. So how does this thing become unclean, um, which is interesting. Plus, we are using the goat of which we've got two goats, and one goat is a sin offering, and we put the, this one. This one is the blood of this goat goes on the mercy seat, what we call the atonement. But the one where we put all the sins of Israel, that goes away into the desert, right? Yeah, it's really cool because, like, even verse 34, you know, kind of clarifies like the overall intention. Is it, do you think, that this is to be a lasting ordinance for you? Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So, you know, clearly the, 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 the atonement is for the people's sins as opposed to just a place or a thing, right? Is that a question? Yep. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, well, Shimshon, you got an answer to that one? Uh, no, not really. I, 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 you know, what you said just um, made me chuckle. <laughs> it, it's um, the, the Master Seats is um, um, the Holies of the Holies. It's a very mysterious place. And, um, you know, I tried to do a research about how do they get it cleaned up after all the um, the work, the job of the priest. I mean, there's blood everywhere. They're not going to keep it till the next year and things like that. And, um, I understood that um, there is a special way where they get some people to go in to clean it and um, that the people will not see any part except where they have to walk in, you know, things like that. Now, of course, you can understand that from the time of um, the Moses during the time of the wilderness experience, they were taking it down. So there were people that had to go in there um, to physically take it down and, um, and move. So... Um, I, I, it looks like as if there's some details that is not so much expressed in the writings um, that for us to, to know, because there's so much out there, especially in the rabbinic um, um, literatures of how this place has been taken care of. But one thing that seems to baffles me is that um, Moses seems to have an access to this place anytime, not just once a year. Moses seems to have an access, not just once a year, but um, Aaron, the high priest, just have the access once a year. And um, 
um, it, it, it baffles me. And I, 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 you say God says in Exodus um, 25 to Moses that uh, I will meet you and speak for it to you from above the mercy seat, referring to Moses. And we know that many times Moses goes before the Lord and the Lord will speak to him. So how come that, um, what level was Moses operating that makes Moses to be able to access this, um, this um, restricted place so much? Yeah, it seems to baffles me. I, I read a lot, but I couldn't find anything concrete to, 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 uh, to give reason why Moses can have that um, privilege than other persons. Thanks, Jim. Sean, you, you've brought in a lot of um, some of the mysteries that come with the, the tent of meeting and the Holy of Holies. Sometimes the Bible seems to write the words tent of meeting or hell idot as a, as, a, as a different place. And sometimes it seems to be synonymous with the tent of with the Holy of Holies. You're never quite 100% sure which one is Moses entering. Is he entering the tent of meeting? Is he going into the Holy of Holies? What does that actually mean? And, uh, and so you actually can up with some commentaries that can tell you it's a different tent, right? um, which, is, which is very strange. But you're absolutely right. Moses seems to have access, a different access that, um, that Aharon does not have. And it's all kinds of reasons perhaps why per se. Can I read that verse? Because I think it might be helpful. So there's a particular verse in Numbers chapter 7, which is, I think this is the one that Shimshon was referring to. This is Numbers 7, verse 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim and spoke to him. Now, it's not quite clear that he's actually standing in the most holy place. He may be standing in the holy place and hear the voice, but that's, that's ambiguous. Right. But it does seem that, that Aaron has, uh, that, sorry, Moses has some sort of special direct connection, which he does, obviously, because he's the one that ascends Har Sinai and not Aaron, et cetera, et cetera. Although there is an occasion where he does take Aaron and the elders. Um, but uh, so he, get, he can get very, very interesting and convoluted, but yeah, it does. It could look like he seems to have special access in in the temple. Once we actually had a physical building and some better ways to do re recording of of history, um, we do get some interesting discussions on how they actually cleaned the holy of holies. And um, for those that might not know, um, what they would do to clean the holy of holies is they would make people would stand on the, literally the roof of the, of the temple and they would be lowered into the Holy of Holies in a little box that had um, three walls. And the only opening wall would be the open wall of the temple. So they would be completely encased. They wouldn't be able to see anything other than the, the wall of the temple in front of them as it was being lowered. And they can clean that bit. So they'll be lowered up and down and then sort of moved along. They wouldn't be able to see anything and then you'd be able to clean it but but also as Shimshon mentions once you take down the tabernacle you're in the holy place and so there seems to be a differentiation between the ceremony don't come into the holy place except once a year and the practicality let's take down the, the tabernacle and move the darn thing and that includes picking up the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, and so there is, 
it is interesting that what we're talking about here in Leviticus is a ceremony. And what we have to remember when we're doing exegesis is we can make it say what we want. But what I mean by make it say what we want, we can exegete and make things spiritual and have allegorical connections, but it can never go against the Peshat. That is, we must always, at the end of the day, remember there is a priest, a high priest, making atonement for our sins, and we don't see what he's doing, and he is far removed from us, yet it works. And, and that same, isn't that incredible theology that shows up in the New Covenant where they say, while I was a sinner, Messiah died for me. Why would he do such a thing? I didn't even know he was doing it. I wasn't paying any attention. And yet I had a high priest acting on my behalf. So you see the, you see the literal meaning, which you can never get away from. But then, of course, there's so many questions in the text. It just begs us to start asking, well, what's my responsibility? What do I have to do? Are you sure that this means that I can just commit a sin and then all my sins are forgiven? Uh, how does that actually work? And, and, uh, and, uh, but, but whatever our answer is, we must never go against the Peshat, which is, a, I think, a very good um, uh, guard uh, in Jewish exegesis, that we don't go off, off the rails. Okay, any other questions before we begin to wrestle with the, the text? Great. All right, guys. So picking it up at verse 11, we see the high priest, Aaron, um, doing, uh, engaging in um, sacrifice for himself and for his household, which we mentioned uh, last week, that there's this um, uh, interesting um, just, uh, way where sin is also a household issue. And it can be dealt in a household issue, which is not something we normally talk, think about, if, we, if, if we're honest, when, when we think about sin in the Christian world. We only think about personal sin. You know? It's just me and Jesus. Yet here, right, and, and some references that we find mysteriously in the New Testament, there's this idea of I will make, I will make atonement for my house. One man will make atonement for somebody else. Okay, which we see in places like Job doing it for his kids, etc. Now, Aaron, he kills the bull right, as a sin offering. Now, there's a ram, but the ram is a burnt offering, which is a different offering entirely. And then he takes a censer full of coals okay, this, uh, from, from, uh, from the altar before the Lord and incense. And this is special incense, which is described in Exodus. And it gives you all the different types of ingredients. And this is a particular type of smell which can only be for God. You can have any smell you like. You can spray on whatever perfume you like and uh, you know, create any type of fragrance and spend lots of money. But there happens to be a particular smell for the Lord, which creates all kinds of new, new thoughts. You mean God actually has a nose? You mean he actually cares what the smells are? Do you mean he actually can smell right? it, it, all these kinds of ideas? And why would he want to? Um, but he does. And uh, there's a particular, particular fragrance which the high priest now creates, and he enters the holy of holies uh, with this um, with this uh, fragrance going inside the porochet. So he actually manages to go in to the holy of holies, and he puts the incense on the fire that is before the Lord. So there's some sort of 
um, flame, which is already inside the Holy of Holies, assuming he also made it, or perhaps even brought it in with him. Okay. And, uh, and then, or another option, what would be another option? The Lord has made the fire. Okay. There's, there's also that other mysterious option where there's a participation in the ceremony. Yes. Now, isn't that, that yeah, isn't that an interesting? Thing? God participates in the ceremony because there's mystery about where certain things suddenly appear from. Right? And, uh, and if you think about it, in all of our own worship services, who's participating in the worship too? God. Yes. Is not God present? You hope so, yes? Is not the Holy, do we not all, always say, Holy Spirit, fall on me? We sing songs like this, you know, you know, Holy Spirit, fill this room. Well, if he is filling the room, what's he going to do? Just show up and go, yeah, I'm kind of here and I'm listening and you're out of tune and you're just off key. Can you, can you do it in D. That's fantastic. You know, um, no, he's participating also. There's this, we're talking to him. He's talking to us. He's listening. I need to be listening. There's all kinds of interactions going on. Um, I, I, one of the things I really appreciate in some Jewish literature uh, and, and liturgies is the, the phrase, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him, right? If you're coming in front of God, what's the first thing to do? Just you tell me what you need me to do, Lord, yeah. as opposed to, let me tell you all about my day. Let me tell you about my prayers. Let me tell you about my needs. Okay, uh, perhaps the Lord needs to tell me something too. So because God is not there to chat with you, you know, he doesn't want to chat, so he enters and he listens. Like if you enter the presence of the Queen Elizabeth, you're just going to keep quiet, right? And let her speak first, then you listen to her first, then you say something if you are asked. Otherwise, this is the... This is the ceremony to go and see what God has to say. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say, that you're there to worship and glorify God. So it's, a, it's a, even a deeper purpose than just, you know, meeting somebody else. But one quick comment I wanted to get back to there just for a second on the household question, you guys. What do you think? Because you know how, we, you know how scripture talks about, like, you know, the sins are passed down to the third and fourth generation. But then you know how it talks about how God like blesses people. What, what's I forget the exact wording for the to the thousandth generation. And when you look at the genealogy, you know how like there's 14 years between uh, 14 generations between you know Adam and you know you go right down the list. There's 14 year 14 generations 14, right down. A thousand generations is the entire human race, isn't it? So in other words, His mercy extends. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. You get what I'm at? You, you get what I'm getting at? So this whole concept of the household, okay, sorry to go back to that, but we just never got a chance to finish it there. That, you know, if he, he makes atonement for himself and his household, like, you know, how in the New Testament, it talks about how, you know, you can, uh, you know, you're, you're believing household, right? That verse that you guys were referring to, I don't have it on top of my head there, but your, your faith, so the faith of the mother, the faith of the grandmother blesses the children. It's like a, it's like a spiritual benediction or something, isn't it? So I'll just read these verses from Exodus 34 that I think you're referencing, which is that they're really powerful ones. And um, so it's um, when the Lord declares his name to Moses. So Exodus 34 um, verses uh, five, six and seven. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed 
the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So it doesn't mention a thousand generations, it just mentions a thousand people, thousands in terms of the numbers of people in that, in that place. Mm -hmm. The, the inyan, the intention, is that the Lord does bring good and or evil and it can affect more than just yourself. It can affect your household. It can affect generations. So the idea that there is merit in, a, in an ancestor, right, which is something you see in Romans. What does Paul say in chapter 11? That the Israelis, the Isra Israel is beloved. Why? Because of the, because of the patriarchs, right? So, because of what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did, then that still carries weight. Now we don't think about it that much, particularly in um, perhaps Western culture. But I bet Shimshon, you could probably tell us that in African culture, patriarchs are very valued. Is that not true? Still to this day. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if, in fact, um, very uh, in the, in the very recent past, a lot of um, even um, Christian family um, try to um, pray for the atonement of their generational sins because uh, many of their um, their generations were involved in the slave trade, and um, this became a, a kind of a curse on that community. So many community has actually come together, especially those that have come to know the Lord and they pray on behalf of the community and confess the sins of their fathers. So we still have that very strong um, um, connection to the patriarch. And we believe um, even from experience that um, sins move down to the third and the fourth generations. Um, we've seen that happens in a lot of places. And um, um, just like um, where Sharon was saying, I think it. If, if we look at um, where God was introducing himself first time to Moses, where he said, Asher, 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 um, um, he, he kind of said something very unique, which um, Sharon is saying, that having mercy to a thousand generations, but when he was introducing himself in the later part in um, Exodus 34, where um, Neville was reading, he didn't, he didn't say that part. He said, having mercy to a thousand generations of those that love him, in other words, it, God will not pardon the sins of those that hate him, but when people turn to him, it will forgive to a thousand generations. And a thousand generations generally in Bible languages means that it will forgive forever, you know, it's, it's right. kind of saying forgive forever. That's what I wanted to say because in, in Hebrew... Can I just read that verse that just relates to what Shimshon was saying, Mari? Do you mind? Yeah, I'm going to just do the same thing in Hebrew. So, okay, go ahead. Deuteronomy... Um, you're doing Deuteronomy 7 and 9? Yes, it says LF door. And also in Deuteronomy 5.10, again, the door, it's a generation. It's not people. It's all about generations. Yeah. Okay, because, yeah, my version says, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Always, you need to go back to the Hebrew source in order not to make any mistakes. So. Your translation is right, and here in Hebrew it says the same. Also in 
in Talmud, it says for thousands of generations in Sota 31a. So forever, you mean? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a biblical way. It's a poetic biblical way of saying a heck of a long time. By the time you get to a thousand generations, the world is over. <laughs> so yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So incense. Now I have to make a confession. When I first came to Israel, I was a nice little um, Protestant believer, and I thought incense was just a horrible thing, you know, very, very poor, and made continued by parts of the church that are obviously incredibly pagan by now. Um, but in my time here in the Holy Land, I have come to appreciate the, the uh, incense on several levels. One, from the Jewish tradition where the worship of God is done by all of your senses and includes a sense of smell. And I appreciate that some of my brothers and sisters who, who hail from different streams of Christianity um, still participate in the worship of God by using smell. And in, in the Jewish tradition, we have the Havdalah, the, uh, which is just fantastic. You, you get to the end of the Sabbath. And no one wants the Sabbath to end. No, no one. There's not a kid on the planet that wants the Sabbath to finish. Okay? Everyone who wants another Shabbat. Everyone. Only the woman at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, pick up, you pick up this little spice box and you smell it. And, you sm and it's to, to remind you that the sweetness of the Sabbath is actually going away. And you're going to have to get up in the morning and, and, and go to work. Um, but I also happen to, to, to look at uh, some of my orthodox and sort of catholic friends which particularly use the sense of smell still in their worship and uh, i've come to appreciate um incense so when i read these passages i can just imagine the smell that uh, aaron has in his hands as he's walking into the lord's presence and he's going oh my gosh i'm the only person the entire israelite community that's able to smell the smell okay me and god are having a very special moment right now. And I've walked into the Holy of Holies with his smell. And he says he puts it on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of incense can cover, again, the lechaper, okay, cover the mercy seat, which is in my English translation, and as we've talked before, probably should just say atonement covering that is over the testimony so that he doesn't die, okay? Now, why would he not die? Where, where, where did that suddenly appear from, right? As opposed to he's not wearing the right clothing, he hasn't made a sacrifice appropriately. Uh, uh, what, what, can you, what, what do you think, guys? Janet, you've got a hand raised. Does it go back to um, saying that, you know, no, no one can see God? No one can see God. You'll, you'll, if you see God, you're going to die. So is there a sense of um, you can hear God, you can be in his presence, but, but you can't see him? I mean, even, even Moses, did Moses actually see God or was he just so much in the presence that he was kind of glowing with it? I mean, until, until we have the Messiah, we don't, we don't see the face. Yeah, that's, 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 those are good thoughts, Janet. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's, um, um, and perhaps I've got a feeling that you might be right. There's a, I studied with some rabbis this morning on uh, the Parashat HaShavua, Kitasei, which is um, the part where Moses is up in the mountain with God 
and is told by God, go down because they're building the golden cow. And a lot of the Midrashim were talking about Moses' experience with God and that he spent 40 days and nights in the presence of the Lord and he didn't eat and drink. And uh, like, well, how can a human sustain himself for 40 days without eating and drinking? And, of course, when you think that, who do you immediately think of? God. God sustained him. Well, who else for 40 days didn't eat and drink? Jesus. Right. Okay. And you, you, get, you, get, you get all kinds of people saying, oh, that's not possible. But, you know, 2,000 years before Yeshua was already in part of a midrash that the one like Moses could be in the presence of God and eat and drink Torah. Right, you eat and drink the bread, you even drink every word of God, and that would sustain yourself. And you already see it, you're like, Oh my gosh! And uh, it was, was quite, quite impressive that in the presence of God, while you might not be able to see Him, as Janet said, you're still in the presence, you can feel, you can be sustained, and you can hear. Jim John, yeah, thanks. Yeah, um, just also to mention that Elijah also had the experience of 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. And when you look at it, um, it's, it's, it has to be by uh, divine ministration. Um, it's not something that is very physical um, because it's physically it's not possible. We see just before Elijah embarked on that journey, he was woken by an angel and was asked to eat a food that the angel brought. So that food must be very packed, you know. <laughs> yeah. And we also saw in the in also in Yeshua's time that when the, uh, at the end of his um, ministration, it wasn't it didn't mention during the during the fasting that the angels came to minister to him, and so we see some other kind of supernatural things going on there. So um, we've had people, I mean, in in in, in Africa that tried to do the forty days. Some of them became sick and so they were hospitalized and you know you know it's bring a lot of tension in in, in the church system and um, I'd like to just let them know that you just need that kind of ministration to be able to do it then talking about the incense um, that you mentioned earlier on I, I wanted to just mention this that when the people come to, when the high priest comes into the holies of holies he comes with the incense. But God himself has said before in that same chapter 16, I think verse 2, he says, tell your brother not to come up before me anytime because I appear in a cloud. So you come with your cloud and God is in the cloud and this cloud comes to me. So God wants you to come with your cloud while his cloud comes. And um, it's a kind of worship where God's um, cloud and your cloud mix together and you, 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 you are one with God in that, um, in that sense of it. Um, Solomon, you know, making reference to the cloud, he says, God, uh, we, we, we just need to appreciate the, 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 the ministry of the incense. Um, it's, it's just that it's not so much thought today. And um, in Christianity, we always say they, those things have passed away. And so people don't like to hear about that today. But um, it has a very, very good play to, for, for our worship with it. Agreed, totally. And I really like like the idea where um, there's, a, there's, there's like a, a co-operation, a co-participation. I bring a cloud, you bring a cloud, and together the Lord appears in a cloud. Well, which cloud does he appear? Does he appear in his own or does he appear in yours? Does he appear in ours? And, yeah, there's a lot of really good theology that 
just shows up in that in that thinking. Where is sorry guys, where is the idea that we have a cloud? Like I thought it was just God that came as the cloud and then sometimes as the fire. Sure. Mo- Moses is bringing a cloud. What's he bringing? He's bringing the, in- the incense. Incense. Oh, okay. That that's creating the smoke. And for those that don't know that incense, incense even today creates an absolute chunk of smoke. If you've been in a in a in an Orthodox cathedral. Um, or even a high Anglican cathedral, I can tell you I was behind an incense altar guy doing a procession. He was waving the incense, and the place was just filling up with smoke. Now, when you have to read the gospel in a high church, you don't hold the the, the Bible. Somebody else holds the Bible for you, and you stand there and just read. Your arms are crossed, so you're not physically touching anything. You're just standing and reading the word of the Lord. And, so, and the altar boy standing off to the corner waving the incense. Well, if he's not careful, there's so much darn smoke, you can't read. You're, you're waving your hands, trying to, you know, look through the passage. Nothing's looking holy anymore. It's all becoming a mess. You're coughing, sneezing, your eyes are watering, and you're thinking, how is God enjoying this other than having a really good laugh at me? Um, so, but so, so when Moses walks into the tabernacle, he probably had quite a good deal of his own his own smoke it would have been a, a delightful smell Yvonne from Brazil yeah I was um just looking at um, Exodus 33 we're talking about seeing the face of God and he says you cannot see you cannot see my face for, for no one can see me and live so it's the, the idea of if we at some point does somebody does have a revelation they couldn't live and that brings me to Isaiah when he has a vision and he sees, says above him, he sees one, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of the robe filled the temple, blah, blah, blah. And he continues and he says, and woe, and I said, woe to me for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And so what happens is from, from this particular um, text, you see that he's, he's in trouble. He's afraid because he 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 apparently has some sort of revelation of, of God. He sees him on the throne and he's afraid that he's gonna die. It's mm-hmm. a concept of not not seeing the face, but nobody can see and live. And so Isaiah's afraid he's gonna get killed because he's seen some sort of manifestation of God and he's afraid he's gonna die. And then of course he's atoned for the coal on his on his, you know, on his lips, on his mouth, and then his sin is taken away and atoned for. So it's this concept of could there be, and you see this a lot, there's a lot of manifestations of, of God throughout the Bible and this whole two powers, and you see that throughout um, scripture, but um, it's, it's can, you see, can you see and live? That's, that's something to think about. Right, and, but yes, so yes, can you see and live? Well, it's complicated because in, throughout the Torah, we see some people side, some Jewish commentaries say that, Moshe Rabbein actually saw him because in Numbers 12 it says God says that I speak to him face to face. Some say, no, it's not in this worldly matter. Blah, blah, But I think you can see and live if you are worthy enough. That's what happened in the Bible. But if you are unworthy, then you'll most likely die. That's why he says, oh, I'm a man of uh, unclean Unclean lips. He knew himself. Then he freaked out. But he lived later on because God wanted him to live. It happens, you know. Yeah. It says Malachadonai. 
high like the angel of God. Who is that angel of God? Uh, Shimshon's parents also saw, blah, blah. It's, it continues like that. It's very complicated. But if you are worthy enough, then surely you will not die. I can say this. I, can, I mean, from my point of view. Yeah, that's a really good thought, Mari. But there's also, too, I think, a passage in the New Testament that says in our flesh that we can't see God. Do you guys know the one I mean? No. I'll dig it up. I'll dig it up. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was, what was I going to say? Nope, I've completely, no, wait. Uh, in the case of uh, the, the guy being um, uh, touching the coals, Isaiah, um, Neville and I were mentioning on Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago, as I preached on this, is that um, some interesting thoughts about that incident is there's an altar in heaven. That's an interesting thought. Not only that, there was something so holy that an angel couldn't touch it. He had to use a tong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, isn't that you get? Because the angel himself is a seraph. He's burning already. Uh, yeah. Um, exactly. Okay. So it's not like it's a, there's a coal that's on fire. Well, I'm on fire, <laughs> so we should be fine. No, but it, the point was there's something so holy that even an angel, which is in the presence of the Lord, has to yeah. thing, and then a human could touch it, you know? Because God allowed him. It's, yes, and you go, now that's bizarre. And so the, there's so much interesting things to think about that God, the way God takes human participation in his holiness and in his, the way he wants us to, to express him to the world uh, is actually incredible. You know, why didn't he use the angels? I need someone to go and share my gospel. Well, you got a myriad of angels. Why don't you send them? They'll do it. But no, the best way, for some reason, is through humans. And uh, God delights to, to show himself to, to the world through us. What a responsibility we all have, guys. We all have this responsibility. We all have this, this call. And um, I think one of the first things we need to do is... is um, come to grips with the holiness of God. And it's interesting, Aaron, there could be like, a, you know, I think at the beginning there was a joint cooperation of human angels and, and the Malachim, right? At the, at the very onset, they were both in the garden. Um, but at the end, you have, uh, you have one of the angels sharing the message of the gospel in the book of Revelation. Yes. Yeah, and that verse, real quick, Aaron, if you want that, is that, uh, you know, in... in, um, in First Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption, but the concept that this mortal must put on immortality mm-hmm. to meet God face to face. Yep, and, and we're seeing it here in Leviticus that uh, a human can walk into the presence of God, but only in a certain way, on God's terms. And and which doesn't mean that that's a horrible thing, or why, do I, why can't I only meet God on God's terms. You're meeting God on God's terms. The Lord has been so generous and so merciful. He said, hey, me a human, come and let's talk. You know? And uh, we can be in each other's presence, which is an incredibly powerful thing. Again, thinking literally, it's only one guy out of the entire community, and he's doing it inside the Holy of Holies. No one else, not even Aaron, going to see him. So you end up with this concept that a high priest whom you don't know or, or see does an action that 
brings atonement for you. And if that doesn't sound like uh, good New Testament theology, then I don't know what is. You know, uh, one of the things I like about Leviticus is if you, you can go theologically as much as you like, but we must always go back to Peshat, and even that speaks some incredible theology that, uh, that teaches us all. Okay, Elizabeth. Yeah, just an observation about the incense. One man carries it in, but the fragrance does not stay there. When the incense is in the cloud, that disperses. So although it's one man taking that action, the man who's outside and several tenths away can smell that fragrance. Yeah, he can. And it gets wafted and disperses for everyone, covering everyone. The other observation was in the New Testament, aren't we supposed to be the fragrance of Christ? Our prayers. Yes. So our prayers are as incense, but we also, through our actions, are incense, which is, which is a good thought. And then that the whole idea of participation between us and the Lord. Uh, Mordecai, you have a hand raised. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I'd like to add something to what you said, you know, uh, that one people, one, one Kohen Gadol saves the entire nation. Uh, I just want to uh, remind you guys that we recently studied on Monday that Jewish people usually go to a, a tomb of a Sadiq, a righteous, to pray. Uh, because God answers the praise of the Sadiqim. You see, in the New Testament, the things that are in the New Testament, like 95% of the things and theology in the New Testament is actually Jewish. So that's why I don't like to call it as a New Testament and Old Testament. It's only one testament about one true God, God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. So when we study like this together, then we understand better that there's only one testament, you know. If you just go to a church in South Dakota and try to talk about these things, they would probably say, oh, instance, it's only a church thing. So yeah, that's, that's why we need to enlarge this group and create more groups like that so we can really close the gap. Amen. Amen. Only one story, one God, one nation, you know. Yeah. One book. One book, so, yeah. So for those in, for those in um, Jerusalem, when we get together and talk, we often will say things like, uh, in Hebrew Bible, it says this, and in Greek Bible, it says this, to make a distinction between which language we're drawing our source from, right? It's all called Bible, but you have, uh, you'll, you'll say things like, and in Latin Bible, it, it talks like this, in Aramaic Bible, it talks like this, uh, without trying to say old, new, left, right, up, down. Uh, we, no, you, yeah, you're trying, you're trying, usually try and put it into um uh, language, and um, and and there's no reason why Greek Bible isn't isn't just as valid as Hebrew Bible because let's all remember that uh, Septuagint is Greek, and that um, that that uh, the New Testament, what we call New Testament, Greek Bible quotes Greek Bible, even though when it's doing it, it's quoting a Hebrew source. That's all very interesting. So we all get to to, to enjoy. I thought to that too, that all of the things that happen in, you know, for example, in, you know, the Tanakh and the, all that, 
that they're all types too of the ultimate messiah that they predict and christ is the fulfillment of that so it's exactly molly right on like it's all one it's all one one story and we're jews right we're grafted in as jews well we're grafted in we remain gentiles but we're grafted abraham c yeah absolutely i'm a son of abraham too even though i'm born in australia all right grafted into what my question is what what are they grafted into Commonwealth of Israel, brother. Kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven. How about the house? How about the house of Israel? Okay, well that'd be nice. Yes, David. So, so Sharon, do you hear what what Pastor Aaron's saying? The house of Israel. Yes, you are. You proud that you're in the house of Israel? Yeah, I just said are so. You, are I you in you. a church or are you in the house of Israel? <laughs> this this has torn me up for eight years, and I still. I mean, if the church would say that the church is in the house of Israel as a body of Gentiles, I can deal with it. But to say that we're the church and the house of Israel is something else, it just it doesn't make sense to me. I can't I can't reconcile it. It's the one new man, Commonwealth of Israel, and the church known as the Ecclesia, the assembly, is is uh, that bit which is grafted in, which was always going to be the way. Always one house. Yeah, that was God's plan, Amen. Because because the, the 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 Torah, as well as the New Covenant, doesn't require Gentiles to become Jews. Correct. That's why I want to say something. I, I don't want to mention to that guy that we have basically talked about on our Monday study, but he and his group say the same thing. They say, keep the seven laws of Noah, then you are saved. Well, we say the same thing. But when we add the name of Yeshua, then they freak out. They say, no, it can never work like that. Yeah. But besides Yeshua, everything is fine. So like they came to that point after 2,000 years that a Gentile can be saved by keeping seven laws of Noah. Well, good luck, Mazel Tov. But you see Romans, a hey, hey boy, sorry to interrupt for one second, Shimshon, but you see Romans 11, don't you think, gentlemen, that that's what sort of clarifies it? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, right? lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Yeah, exactly what you guys are all saying, all making us all one, right? Correct. Yep. And we, yep. So the ecclesia, the church, the assembly, whatever you want to call it, it's uh, we're grafted into the, to the, the, the household of Israel. We get to share in the prophets. We share in the blessings of the covenant. We share in the promises to Abraham, just as God promised Abraham, his absolute treasure. And the and the Jewish people, well, they're already there, right? They're going, well, we already believe in God. We already have the full promises. What they need is the Messiah. Can I just say one more thing and then I'll meet myself forever. So you see, in the Greek Bible, you see the problems between the early Gentile Christians and the Jewish Jesus followers, right? So what, what, what were the problems that the circumcision, eating kosher, blah, blah, right? Now, after 2,000 years, they have solved that problem. What did they say? They say you don't have to be circumcised, right? I don't say this. A large Orthodox group say that right now. The Ben and Noah, they call themselves, that you don't have to keep Shabbat, you don't have to eat kosher, and you will be safe. So like what, they, what the apostles, followers, the disciples of Yeshua understood, 2,000 years ago, he is understood just now. Like two ta- it took 2,000 years for us to understand it. Oh, for the Jews to understand, you mean? Because they understood yeah, yeah. it at the time, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. 
Now they say the same thing. You know, Yeshua said something that's, um, that's, let me just put this in here. Yeshua said salvation is of the Jews. And if he has said it in today's, um, today's world, uh, a lot of people will have called him, um, you know, a, they will have called him a lot of names, you know. They called him a Zionist. Yeah, call him a Zionist, call him a, a, a racist or something like that, you know. Yeah. But that's the word of God. He was telling this woman at the well that we know what we worship, but you guys, you don't even know what you worship. You know, and, you know, and um, it says at the end of the day, God is taking those who worship in the spirit and the truth, and which is the essence of the Torah. Okay. Now, I'm just looking at the time. I'm going to get to all your guys that have got a hand raised. I will. What I'm doing is giving the caveat. We are, we are at uh, uh, quarter past eight. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. See, you know, you just open up the Bible and you start talking. We managed to get through four verses. Okay. Like we're really, really working through it. But, but these are good things because we need to wrestle with these questions. We need to wrestle with things that Leviticus is bringing up to us. But we don't ignore them. We don't run away from them. We don't shy away from them. And we learn. And hopefully we're learning um, to be better sons and daughters of Abraham, sons and daughters of God, and, and, uh, and, and people of the kingdom. All right. Yvonne, you're up. Just a, just a quick quick uh, comment to what Sharon had mentioned. It's just, uh, a, you know, we think of two groups, but there's actually three. There's Jews that haven't not been, that haven't appropriated their Messiah. There's, there's Gentiles that have not appropriated the Messiah of Israel. And there's a third group, which is um, Jew and Gentile together, saved believers in the, in the Messiah. And there's, so there's this third group and we each keep our own identities, but we're all saved in Messiah. And it just brings me to Revelation chapter three, chapter five, um, where um, there was a scroll in the lamb and uh, the new song that was being said, sung, worth are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people of God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on earth. So it's amazing how at the same time, we're all part of one group. We also have our own identities, our own tribes, language, our people groups. And together we um, love, love the Messiah and follow his word. Amen. sister. All right. So uh, just looking at the, what we've managed to cover, we've actually covered an unbelievable uh, lot. Um, in terms of the actual text, we are looking at going in to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, for this guy, for Aaron, it was literally once a year. Did Moses do it a few more times than that? Possibly. Moses is prophet. Aaron is priest. What does that mean? Does that mean anything? It's possible. Um, can Aaron go in whenever he feels like it? No, there are restrictions. You know, there's, this, there's this sense that God is other. We don't dictate to him. He tells us. And that's, a, that's, that's something very humbling that we should all, all be uh, able to do. There was this notion that um, atonement is generational. So are the blessings. But it was also family, household. That means there was merit. Now, that is an interesting concept because that means the, 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 just like the, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much, so do his deeds. 
Now, if you're a, uh, uh, a good, um, upright um, member of your household, what effect does that have on your household? Probably more than we think. And, um, and some of us probably can, could probably tell stories of members of our kin, clan, tribe, family, that we could say, that guy, he was, uh, you know, my grandfather, he was always a good man. He was a devout man. And you still look up to him. And we're still benefiting from his wisdom and his teaching and his blessing to us, uh, which puts an interesting burden of responsibility on what we're doing right now. Are we loving our wives the right way? Are we bringing up our children in the way that they should go? Are we having an influence on our neighbours and our community? Are people wanting to come over and see us and, and, and soak in some of what we're, we're doing? Um, so that whole idea of the household and the generational idea is a, is, is a, is a really good thought uh, and something that we should probably think about. And then this idea of participation. God meets Aaron in a cloud, yet Aaron is also bringing his own cloud. And there's an intermingling of smells, delights, cloud, vision not being able to be seen, yet fully in the presence. And so there's this participation. And uh, let's all remember, it's just happened to one guy. Our little friend over in the far corner of the camp doesn't know what's going on, can't smell anything, can't hear anything. There's a... 300,000 people between him and Moses. What does he care? But it's having an effect. And uh, so at next, next week, we will probably talk a little bit more about what's his responsibility. Does he have some or does he just get off scot-free? Um, we, we, we didn't get to the uh, discussions on why are there two goats? You know, what do those two goats re represent? Why is what? Because Moses goes in and he takes the goat and he puts the blood of the goat on the uh, blood of the bull, sorry, on the uh, the mercy seat or the the kaporet. So he's sprinkling some of the, the blood that was meant to atone for him and his household, and now he's using that also to atone for the ark of the covenant. Hang on, it's perfect. It's got the Bible inside. You no, know, the, the Ten Commandments. He's got the some manna in it. Well, what's going on? Where, where did it go wrong? Um, uh, but the, the participation, the, the, the potential for us humans to participate in saving other people. And what does Yeshua say? If you forgive other people's sins, they are or they're forgiven. Now, that is a powerful statement in John. So, no, wait, wait, I thought it, I thought it was Jesus, just as Jesus saves. True. And then the person who saves turns around and says, guess what, Aaron? You're going to participate in this so much. That if you forgive, they are. Oh, my gosh, brothers and sisters, the responsibility, the blessings, the opportunities that we have are, uh, I think, probably not explored enough. But um, we will have the opportunity to share. Anyway, guys, thank you for our study. And I look forward to continuing this, uh, all of these thoughts, because I, I want to I wrestle with the two goats idea. What, what does that mean? I want to wrestle with the responsibility that, that we have, not just what God is doing, but what's my response to all of this uh, as, as we go. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. 
Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King